How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The politics of that was begins right now. Joining me now is Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, Keith Baldry. Hello, Keith. Hey, Josh. Lots to talk about, uh, and usually with week that was, we, we look at the things that have transpired over the, the, the earlier part of the week, but let's start with something that was announced actually today, just a couple of hours ago. Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, said that the Ministry of Health has established a nurse-to-patient ratios that will be used in hospitals across the province to improve workload standards, millions of dollars being poured into it. Essentially, uh, there would be six new minimum nurse-to-patient ratios, general, medical, and surgical inpatients, one nurse to four patients, uh, palliative care, one nurse to three patients, focus care, one nurse to three patients as well, uh, one nurse to two patients when it comes to high acuity step-down nursing, and then intensive care, one nurse to one patient. Here is Health Minister Adrian Dix making that announcement just a couple of hours ago. We're announcing today we've established six minimum nurse-to-patient ratios in hospital units, which will be supported by $239 million investment to recruit, return, and retain nurses. What this means for nurses and patients is that there must always be a minimum number of nurses to patient. For example, medical and surgical units in BC will require one nurse to four patients 24-7. This is the only place in the world, once this is implemented, where this will be the case. Keith, it sounds quite significant, and the dollars are, are certainly significant in regards to what Mr. Dix announced today. What's your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is this matches the overhaul of the doctor's payment uh, uh, system that was announced last year. So this is a this is a real uh, major step, I think. Um, it's been a long an issue of not only uh, attracting nurses but retaining them in the system that can literally have them worked off their feet. So now with the, again, part of the presentation news conference, this is going to go a long way, hopefully, to not only attract nurses to come work in BC, because it's the first jurisdiction in Canada to have these nurse ratios, um, but to stay in the system once they get here and not leave. So um, a lot of stats are provided today of the significant number of nurses that have been hired the last year, a number of them are internationally trained. And I think having nurse ratios like this broken down by, as you say, six categories is sort of a, a groundbreaking move. Uh, again, no one in Canada has done this, and it's uh, going to be interesting. But already, no sooner Mr. Dix made that announcement, the Hospital Employees Union issued their news release saying, what about us? What about our care aides? What about our members? Because it wasn't just the the, um, the racials announced today. There was also some more meat on the bone put on some of these um, signing bonuses that nurses are now going to be offered if they want to go, if they can go to the north or remote areas, up to $30,000 signing bonus for the north up to $20,000 signing bonus for rural and remote communities, up to $15,000 if they join what's called the Go Health uh, program, which is nurses who travel around the province. So this is a, a commitment for at least two years. So they, HEU is now looking for something like this as well. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if they get this in some shape or form come the next contract talks. Can we afford this? Well, I mean, um, I would say in healthcare, you can always argue, can we afford not to do something, particularly when it comes to attracting medical professionals? Um, 
kind of fit within the overall fiscal picture. We're running an $8 billion deficit in the coming year. <laughs> um, so you can question whether a lot of things can be afforded. But I think a lot of people agree that when it comes to funding something, health care is probably the most precious thing. Yeah, and I think it, that, that's for, for whatever political background you come from. I think we all agree we want a strong public health care system. I just remind myself in 2016, the NDP were handed a $2.8 billion surplus, and we're heading towards an $8 billion deficit. Somewhere along the way, there's going to be somebody going, wait a minute here, can we continue to f- afford all of this? And I would love to see more nurses hired, as many as we need for our system. Well, the, but it's the, a- trick, the trick for any government right now is to increase revenue somewhere without increasing people's taxes. Yeah. That's the challenge. And that means getting a lot of natural resource revenue into the coffers. Yeah. All right, well, let's let's move to our next issue, and that is, of course, the, the BC Conservative Party. Anytime new party uh, starts up or starts getting attention. They get uh, new candidates that are announced. And generally, some of these candidates are what I would describe as sometimes lower profile. Some of them actually can be quite trouble for the party when they dig into their background a little bit. But uh, the couple of uh, uh, candidates that the BC Conservatives have announced, uh, I would describe as solid candidates, certainly on paper from what I can tell. One of them was announced today, uh, Alia Warbus, uh, who is with the Stolo uh, Territory. Uh, she's also the daughter of former uh, left Governor of British Columbia, Stephen uh, Point. Uh, at the same time, also, we learn that Amelia Boltby, who is a city councillor in Penticton, will also be running for the BC Conservative. Uh, she's uh, born and raised in uh, in Penticton, elected city council in 2022. She also uh, attended UBC Law School. Uh, pretty solid candidates there. Yeah, and in writings that the Conservatives can win. Um, most definitely Chilliwack uh, Cultus Lake, not usually uh, is held by the NDP right now. First time they'd ever won that seat and won basically on a, on a split with a uh, controversial Liberal candidate, Laurie Thornness, and also a strong independent candidate. It allowed the NDP to win with you know 37% of the, of the vote or so. Uh, Penticton, uh, NDP's only won one, there once, and that was in 91. Again, on a vote split. That's traditionally a, a fairly conservative area of the province. So the Liberal Dan Ashton is leaving. He's not seeking re-election. So the United uh, Party does not have the incumbency advantage, which is really needed in some of these tight three-way races. So, yeah, these two names that just emerged uh, in the last couple of days are significant. I mean, these are solid candidates, and the Conservatives are going to be very competitive in that those ridings, if not the riding, if not the party to beat. Depending on the polls, BC Conservatives hovering around. Around you know mid uh, you know mid twenties about twenty five twenty three depending on what poll you look at uh, BC United anywhere from fifteen to twenty points depending on what poll you look at if these numbers stick two or three months from now or in and around the end of the legislative session what's this mean going into summer and then of course a fall election. Well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people jumping out of windows on one side of the political <laughs> spectrum because uh, that's we just got a vote analysis from um, one of our polling. Um, uh, specialists uh, who do aggregate polling, 338, I think it's called. That right now, based on some of these um, polling, the NDP would be looking at like an 80 to 90 seat house, and BC United with less than 10, and the Conservatives hovering around, you know, 10 to 15. So right now, it's looking like a NDP wipeout, but there's eight months to go before the vote. But you know, it's. Um, it's a unique situation where the Conservatives seem to have a momentum they've never had before in terms of generating headlines. Uh, they've got two members in the House. They haven't had that in decades. Uh, so they have a presence in the legislature. They, they're ahead of the United, which is losing members rapidly. Ten members now not seeking re-election in that caucus, which is a huge number. 
particularly as again in tight three-way races the incumbent advantages can be significant and they've lost 10 advantages because of those uh, looming retirements well one man who certainly knows of of uh, winning big that's gordon campbell in 2001 i think 77 of 79 seats the then bc liberals won mr campbell was on this show uh, at three o'clock today talking about the legacy of brian mulrooney our 18th prime minister who passed away yesterday at the age of 84 one of the things i asked uh, uh, premier former premier campbell was would brian mulrooney who was you know bill bridges from uh, disenfranchised Westerners to Quebec nationalists to traditional progressive conservatives in central Canada, would a person like that, uh, would a person like Mr. Mulroney succeed in an era of polarized politics? Take a listen to Mr. Campbell's response. Yes, I do. You know, I think one of the challenges in politics today is too many people are trying to be too much to too many people. You've got to stand for something. You have to know what you're willing to lose for as well as what you want to win to do. And I think that Brian Mulroney was showed time and again that he was willing to stand for something he you know he was willing to lose for he thought free trade was something that was important to to canada he thought it was important to all of the provinces and he stood for it and he could have lost you know people forget that that free trade debate was a very you know hard fought debate and he stood for it and he believed in it and he was willing to lose for it uh, your thoughts, Keith? I mean, you've you've met so many politicians locally and nationally and, and even internationally. I mean, some would argue it's very hard to, you know, find that quality of leadership this day and age. Well, the point, Mr. Campbell's point about you have to stick with it, it's becoming increasingly hard, I think, for governments to do that, uh, particularly in the wake of uh, sort of the balkanization of the political system. Uh, everyone in sort of these little silos, um, less coalition politics, more populism on both the left and the right. Um, you know, it was interesting. Gordon Campbell was driven from office for, because of the HST. You know, he couldn't stick with that. Uh, Gordon or Brian Mulroney, at the end of his term, the big issue wasn't free trade. It was the GST which he was roundly torched for. Ironically, as he pointed out in an interview about five years ago, for all the grief he was given and attacks he was given, he noted with quite a bit of irony that GST remains on the books and shows no signs of disappearing no matter who's forming government. So I think it's harder to stick to some positions that can be unpopular. Um, because the noise levels are, I think, higher than they have been in the past with the advent of social media, now the looming specter of artificial intelligence. It's just going to make political discourse much more difficult in this country. Uh, we are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. It's part of our the week that was in BC politics. Keith, I just want to go back uh, just for a moment uh, in regards to BC Conservative candidates and um, and BC United itself, at the rate this is going, I mean, I is there any sort of reasoning that is there anybody out there who believes that somehow that both of these leaders who represent a free enterprise perspective to the world under Mr. Rustad and Mr. Falcon that they can actually get back together and uh, and and put that coalition back together again? No, <laughs> no, I've talked to Rustad. Um, uh, both seem to say, one day they say, well, sure, we can always talk. The next day they dismiss it out of hand. Rustad said, told he was told to, you know what, when he sent an emissary. Now he says, I can't repeat it on radio or TV, what they told me to do. Uh, I talked to him this week uh, and pointed out to him that we did, we did a story on him on Global on his Surrey School idea, which was to get rid of portals and put more kids and have larger classrooms, which didn't go over well with a lot of people. But nevertheless, he got some airtime. That didn't go over well with some BC United folks, and he kind of enjoyed that. So there's a lot of egos involved in this. 
And there's not a lot of time left between now and, and again, every day these these parties are announcing new candidates. So if Rustad were to join up with VC United, what does he what does he tell the two candidates we just talked about, uh, who have been recruited and have been signing the papers? And what is what would Falcon tell his candidates in the writings that VC United has uh, candidates in, and sort of the BC Conservatives? So I think the the it's, we're too far down the trail of not of candidates being appointed or nominated uh, to suddenly turn around and tell these people they can't run again because we've decided to merge parties. That uh, just is not going to happen. You, uh, in past conversations, have sort of referenced this era, this moment uh, with these two free enterprise parties, and and have sort of uh, you know looked back to 1991 when uh, Gordon Wilson and BC Liberals at that time took off under an old Socred party, uh, and then the NDP came into power. What's changed since then, from 1991 to to, to today, well, in regards to just Vancouver and and even even I, the island? So, what's changed is the electoral map has undergone significant transformation. And in 1991, I just did a calculation the other day: 57 percent of the ridings were in Metro Vancouver, and I'm not, not talking the Fraser Valley, but just Metro Vancouver that ends at Maple Ridge and Surrey, um, and and Vancouver Island. Uh, in 2020, or in the upcoming election, because we're adding six more seats, 72% of the writings will be in those same two geographical regions, which, by and large, elect new Democrats, not the alternative. BC United has nothing on the island. The Greens have two. That is in danger of going down to one. Uh, come the next vote, that's going to go NDP. In Metro Vancouver, there's a number of seats being added, and I think the NDP right now is seen an analysis is going to win the lion's share of those, along with the ones they already have. So all the ridings, the majority, 72%, almost three-quarters of the ridings are in areas where the NDP is strongest, and that's a fundamental difference from 50, from 91. For years, the electoral map did not reflect the huge, growing suburban-urban population growth because we only we only change this map every 10 years well in the last last number of years since 30 years since 91 the population has exploded in in urban and suburban areas not rural and that means there's more and more seats added in areas that traditionally support the new democrats that's a fundamental shift from 91 well it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next few weeks and as we head towards election day on october 19th keith thank you for your time have a great weekend all right